Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther, relatively close to getting to the book of Psalms near the center. This morning I want to talk about the topic of providence, in particular God's providence, and to do that the book of Esther is an excellent text for us to consider. It's, uh, you might notice that there is no specific text listed, and that's because rather than taking a few verses, we'll be looking at the entire book, although at least the highlights of that. And so uh, in a moment, I'll, I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in. Nothing poetic and glib or, or even, hopefully, no, I won't say uninteresting, but we'll just jump right into the text as we begin so that we can cover uh, the ground that we need to cover this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come realizing that you have told us to, and uh, instructed us that we should not lean on our own understanding or our own wisdom, but that we should seek wisdom that comes from you, and that your promise is that as we seek your wisdom, you are faithful to grant us wisdom, that wisdom begins uh, by seeing you and by fearing you. Lord, we also realize that your promise has been that your word is, is powerful to have the effect that you intend that it always uh, has, uh, bears fruit. And so we pray, Lord, upon that promise that you would bear fruit in us this morning, that you would reveal uh, within us perhaps uh, our weaknesses and our brokenness, but not to lay us simply out or uh, wasted, but so that at that point we might find the healing that we are in need of, that we might find the sweetness of your grace the hope that comes from all of your promise. And with that, we might find wisdom for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bear this fruit within us, that you might strengthen us and help us to grow to be more like Christ and to build us up together until all reach the full maturity in Christ Jesus, through whom we pray. Amen. The book of Esther is essentially a story of God's people and how God has preserved them from the threat of extinction. There's a, there's a number of themes that run through that, and we'll touch on some of them, but that's a, a, a simple overview of what uh, this story is about. It's a pivotal point in history, the history particularly of God's redemptive plan. The people were in threat of being, uh, being, being exterminated, and therefore they were facing very, very dire circumstances. Now, when we think of Esther, if you're familiar with it at all, we tend not to think of it as, as that significant of a period of time. When we think of times through history where there was great threat and, it was, uh, and, and great uh, difficulty, we might think in terms of Egypt and Israel's escaping Egypt, and as they were fleeing with the Egyptians pursuing them and up against the Red Sea, and God's grace to provide for them by opening the Red Sea, allowing them to escape, and then closing in over the Egyptian army to delivering his people protecting them from the harm of those uh, who would do them in. But we don't necessarily think of Esther, but it's important that we understand that this is a dire time in the history of Israel. There was a plan to eradicate every Jewish person, and this is what they, and, and this is what they were up against. Now, that fact itself kind of highlight some problems that we see in the book of Esther, problems that we need to embrace in order to understand what God is doing here. We need to feel that tension that is, has been revealed in order to, to, to know what God is, is, is doing here. 
Because if we remember the series that we've been doing, looking from Genesis on, the call of God and the promise of God was that he would call a people to be his own. He would bless those people, calling them from out of the nations. He would bless those people, and then through those people, he would bless the nations. Those people themselves would be a very blessing to the nations. So he calls Abram and promised not only the, uh, to Abraham to bless him, but all who were his descendants, all of his descendants would be used and would be, would be a blessing. And yet here in this story, yet again, we find the people of Israel facing the possibility of annihilation. The very people God had called, the very people God had blessed, the very people God had planned to use is a very real possibility, a very real threat that they will no longer even exist, that they would be entirely wiped out. If you're one of the people that uh, are part of the nation of Israel, one of the things that it's important to understand and for us to, to feel is what's at risk here, what's at stake here, is not just the future of the Hebrew people, but God's very plan, God's very promise. You see, the people that are in this story, they have no idea how things are going to turn out in the end. And so while they're under the threat, they have to be asking themselves questions like, can God be trusted? Will God deliver? Important questions. Questions that you and I ask from time to time. Because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when circumstances are difficult, and I'm prone to ask those kinds of questions. And yet there's something that's also significant in the book of Esther that makes the problem even more vivid. It's unique, or you might say it's conspicuous by its absence, but the book of Esther is the only book in the entire, in the entire Bible where the name of God is never mentioned, not even once. And so these people are are facing these circumstances, these dire circumstances, and God doesn't even seem to be anywhere around. And I believe that the author of the book of Esther, whoever he may have been, was employing a, an intentional literary technique in order to express to us or to communicate to us uh, some very important truths or, or one, a truth that is, is pertinent to us. Because as I've already admitted, there are times in my life where circumstances are difficult, things are hard. I'm not sure how things are going to end up. I'm not sure how I am going to end up. And at those times, I, I'm prone to ask the questions like, God, where are you? And I, I wonder where God is. It's not that I'm doubting that God exists, and it's not that I doubt God's power. But for whatever reasons, God just does not seem to be present. He seems just very distant. I don't know if I'm alone in feeling that way. I don't know if you felt that way or not. But if you are like me in this, at times that you feel that God is very distant, particularly when you are in the midst of difficulties in your life and you're wondering where God is, I want you to know that you're not alone. Some of God's greatest saints that are recorded in all of the scriptures have experienced that same emotion. The psalmists repeatedly are crying out to God, and one of the common refrains throughout the psalms is, How long, O Lord? Another one that goes along with that oftentimes is this, will you forget me forever? So the psalmist are decrying out to God in the midst of whatever circumstances they're facing, things that are, are difficult, things that are frightening. And God seems to be strangely distant. And so they're crying out to him, exposed and in need. And that's important for us to understand, it's important for all of us to understand because I want us all to realize that when you are going through difficulties and God just seems to feel distant and you want to cry out, 
to cry out that way, to acknowledge that you're wondering where God is, it is not unspiritual. To do that does not make you unspiritual. God has chosen to record people his, that, he, uh, that are crying out that way in order to encourage us. It's not that we are, are less, lesser in our faith. It doesn't make us unspiritual. It makes us real. And I believe through the Psalms and here in the book of Esther, one of the things that we draw out from this is the importance of our being real before God and crying out to him even when he seems to be very distant. We could probably put it this way. In the book of Esther, we see what God is doing when God doesn't seem to be present. And it's an important lesson for us to learn. And as we look at the story and consider the story in whole this morning, I want to do so asking three questions. The first question is this, is how does God's providence work? The second question is, how do we see God's providence? And the third question is, how should we respond to God's providence? And so the first question being, how, uh, is, how does God's providence work? And to understand that, it's probably helpful if we understand the story. As we come into Esther chapter 1, at the beginning of the story, we see the king is about to throw a, a long party. Picking up in verse 1, we'll read, and I'll kind of stop and make some comments as we go along. And then we'll pick up and give an overview of the text. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, and, uh, and I'll stop right there. This is not the pace we're going to take, so don't worry. Um, but some of your Bibles, if you're not reading the ESV, some of your Bibles might say Xerxes. And so before anybody questions the text or whatever, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. Historians tell us it's the same guy. It's just a matter of whether, you record, whether it's being recorded in, in the Hebrew or in the Greek. But it's, it is the same guy, not only from Bible scholars, but other scholars as well. So we'll back up again, and we'll move on beyond then. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 providences, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and his servants. The army of the Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and, and provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp and his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, let's, what's going on here is the king third year of his reign, deciding that he's going to throw a party. This is a guy that's it's really an interesting guy. I find this king, in many ways, respects a guy who is easy to like. There's some admirable qualities that we see even revealed here in, at, the, at the very beginning, some others that we'll see in just a moment. But the king decided he's going to throw this celebration, and this celebration is not just for the elite of the society. This is a, a celebration for everybody uh, that is part of his kingdom, his extensive kingdom. This is a powerful and influential guy. It talks about his, the reign, not only geographically from India to Ethiopia, but there's 127 uh, different entities or, or states or provinces that he has authority over. Think about that. It's, it's, it's basically two and a half times the authority that the President of the United States has, having only 50 states and then a few territories. So this guy was powerful and influential and yet he was concerned about everybody in the kingdom, and he wasn't just hanging out with the powerful, but he's throwing this party for even the servants, and the servants were anybody who lived within his realm. And the party was an extensive party. It says for 180 days. Now, Bible scholars tell us that it probably was not 180 days of party or six months of straight party. 
but it would be more like a festivity that we have in our own culture, whether it's a generation ago, the bicentennial year, or a few years ago here, that I imagine what Jamestown 400 was like, that you take a long period of time, and throughout that period of time, there are regular festivities. People come together, and they celebrate, and they have their party. And then at the end of that time, it says that at the end of that uh, six months, there was actually seven days of party. So they have six months, basically, of uh, intervals where there's regular uh, festivities, and then at the end of it, there's Mardi Gras. And so everybody comes together uh, at, that, at that time. Now, at, at the, uh, as, we, as we move on, and there's a description as the people come, uh, come in, verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords and fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of of, um, uh, of poverty. So we see just no expense was spared. Everything that belonged to the king, he was bringing out the finest things wherever the party was being celebrated. And so the king is throwing this elaborate party, this extensive party, he's inviting everybody to it. There is some very commendable things, although we also see something here that is, is a little less um, appealing, is that the purpose behind the party is he wants to celebrate his own glory. The whole purpose is, let's have a party, and then everybody can come and see all the stuff I've got, realize all the power I have so that people will admire him. And so he was, may have been a good guy, but he was lacking in humility. So the party went on, particularly we move forward into, into uh, uh, in the text. Let's pick up in, in verse um, 7. Drinks were served in, in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And so as the festivities are going on, even in this last week when everybody was drinking up, the king says, but everybody understand this. If you don't drink, don't worry about it. While everybody else is raising their glasses to the toast, he's making it clear nobody should feel under any compulsion to do this. If you don't, if you're, if you're, if you don't drink alcohol, you know, you go sip on your iced tea or whatever it is that was your alternative. And so, again, he's a sensitive guy here. And yet, we see some foolishness as we continue on. Verse 9, we do read this, that during the festivities, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king Ahasuerus. And then in verse 10, we see, the, as the party goes on, the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. And that's a Disney way of saying the king got drunk. He apparently was not a mean drunk. He was a merry drunk. He was a happy drunk. But he was merry with wine, and in his merriment, he becomes uh, foolish. He commanded his servants, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So with all of his good attributes and good qualities and likable qualities, the king in his drunkenness, actually, he's, he's soaking in all the admiration that people have for him and for all of the great stuff. People are admiring everything he has. And then in his drunkenness, he says to his friends that are gathered around the table, he said, you think this stuff is great? I've got a trophy wife that will knock your eyes out. And he sends for her to come in. And we meet Vashti here. Vashti's an interesting character because Vashti, for reasons that are, who is the queen, for reasons that are not difficult to, to imagine, she didn't think this was such a good idea. I mean, the text tells us that she was beautiful, so chances are guys have been hitting on her all her life, at least before she became the queen, where you could die for hitting on her. And she's probably had enough of it. 
And she realizes that the whole purpose of her being brought out was so that she could be ogled by a bunch of drunken guys. And she says, this is just no way. I, I'm not, I, this, is, this is ridiculous. And so she sends word back that she is, is not coming. So Vashti is, is fascinating in this way. Feminists love Vashti. Because Vashti first says, I will not be objectified. I am not just an object for men to look at. And then second she says, no man's going to tell me what to do, even the king. And so for that reason, feminists love her. But I, I think that feminists shouldn't be alone in that. She should be commended for that because it was absolutely, it was a stupid and a ridiculous quest. But even while she should be admired for this, she also had some nerve because she's taking a great risk in saying no to the king summoning her to come in and to be ogled at by the bunch of drunken guys. Because in that day, the king had absolute authority over everything within his realm. What the king said happened. Even what the king didn't say, if, if, if you were not summoned into the presence of the king, you did not come into the presence of the king. This was not just for the subjects, this was even for his wife or his royal council. And here the king is summoning her, and she's saying no. And he's summoning her, not even like they're at home or in their castle, and she's in one part of the castle doing what she's doing, and he's in another part of the castle watching the game on the big screen TV, and says, you know, I, I want to talk to my wife, and sends a servant to go get her, and she says, you know, I'm busy, maybe later. It's not a private matter. They're in the midst of the celebration. This is the highlight, the climax of a six-month celebration, celebrating his glory, his authority, his power. And then he's going to put on display his greatest glory, his treasure, his trophy wife. And he sends for her, not even thinking that there would be a possibility. And she comes back and says no, while he's standing there, sitting there with all of his friends. I mean, this was scandalous. And the text tells us that the king's anger burned within him. We read that in, in verse 12. But then we also realize that he says that he kind of calmed down a little bit. And so rather than exercising the authority he had, and he had the authority to execute her for saying no, because this was just scandalous. He sought his advisors to see if he should do anything. His advisors came in and they acknowledged that it was a scandal and they were operating with great fear. They said, you know, if, if she gets away with this and every woman in the and the whole kingdom will stop obeying their husband. And so there'll be horror. So they can't, they got to do something. And so the advisors come up with a plan. And the essence of the plan is this. They're going to fire Vashti and then go find themselves a new queen. Vashti would be banished. She would no longer be queen. She would be sent away. And she would, her name would never be mentioned again uh, in, in that kingdom. And then they were going to go secure for themselves a, a new queen. Now, the new queen is going to be selected through a process that we see in Esther chapter 2. And rather than looking, I mean, rather than going into the details of the text, I'll just tell you this, is that what they decide to do is basically an ancient Persian version of the TV show, The Bachelor. That's what they're going to do. you got one guy, and then they're going to gather all of the most beautiful young virgins, which means young women, probably 18 to 20, 21 years old, that are in the kingdom. They're going to gather all of them together, and then each of those women is going to be given one year to prepare themselves, to beautify themselves at the king's expense. And then after that year is up, each woman would be brought in turn, one after the other, for one night with the king. And then the king would decide whether he liked the woman or whether he didn't like the woman, and he would end up, ultimately, there would only be one winner, and there would be one who would be, would be crowned queen uh, fully. 
this was a horrible position for these young women to be in. Because there was only one winner. And nobody knew what was going to happen. For almost everyone, it was going to end very badly. If it was a woman who came in and the king wasn't particularly interested in her, it wasn't like she would be able to be sent back into society as a whole and she would go on with her life. Take Middle Eastern culture today. These women were no longer virgins. And they would have been killed out in society. And so the only hope for the ultimate losers was that the king would keep them, and he would. He would keep them and make them part of the harem where they would be provided a place to live and they'd be provided uh, with, uh, with the food that they needed to eat. And then every once in a while when there was a public ceremony, they would bring the harem out to be eye candy for everybody that was gathered for the festivities and then they would be sent back. That was the life that they would have at least until their beauty began to fade. Now there may be some other women there that the king liked a little bit more than, uh, than, than others and so he might decide that rather than just making them part of the harem, they'd be part of the harem, but he'd also make them part of their concubine. And so in addition to coming out for festivities to be eye candy, every once in a while the king would say to one of his servants on a restless night, I remember such and such girl, bring her to me, and that girl would be made the pleasure toy of the king. Now some of the women he would like perhaps even more, and he would choose to make them one of his wives, one of many wives. It's barely a step above the concubine, but at least if they were made one of his wives, they would not be queen but their children would be provided for. Children would be educated, they would have status, they would be royalty, and so there was a future for the children. And so while the, the woman was, life was basically over, at least she had reason for hope for her children. But only one woman was going to be named the, would name the queen, whoever it is that the, the, the king liked. And here's where we're introduced to Esther, who is the heroine of the story in many ways. Esther, we're told, is a young Jewish orphan girl who has been raised by her cousin Mordecai, both of her parents had been killed when she was at a, a relatively young age. And she was selected to be one of the contestants. And she, along with the other girls, are really put in a very bad situation, not only because only one would ultimately win, but it's not like they can receive the letter inviting them to be a part of the, the program and say, you know, thank you for the invitation. It's nice to be nominated, but I think I'll decline. The king is summoning them to be part of this thing. And Esther is one of the women who's summoned to be part of this process, of this pageant to select the new king. Her cousin Mordecai, who is her legal guardian, just says, I think you just need to go with it. And he offers her a couple of pieces of counsel. One is, he says, it may be better, just don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. Don't bring religion into this. And then the second piece of advice he says is, do whatever you need to do to win. And so Esther goes along with the, with the process, goes along with everything that's involved, goes and gets beautified. In fact, she goes even further. She, in her slickness and at Mordecai's um, encouragement, she actually uh, is smart enough to find uh, the eunuch who is overseeing all the girls. He, she gets in good with him and finds out what the king likes in order to prepare herself. And so when she spends her night with the king, she knows exactly what the king likes to put her in a better position to win, which she ultimately does. Now, when we look at Esther, Esther is a picture of in one sense for us, of moral confusion. So we think of Esther as the heroine, and she ultimately is. She's the one through whom God would deliver his people spare, and, save, and save his people. And there's a book named for her in the whole Bible, so she must be good, right? And yet when we look at Esther, her life, her attitude, and her actions, we, we find ourselves, if we're looking at this story closely, we should be scratching our head and say, 
she's not an example for anything. She's certainly not a moral example of the way that we ought to live our lives. Why do we celebrate her so much? And it can cause some confusion because we are so prone to read the Bible looking for our moral heroes and examples of how we are to live. And if you look at the way Esther lived her life, the way she compromised at almost every turn, that's not the way we would encourage any of our daughters to live. We need to understand that Esther presents to us a reminder and a challenge about how we read our Bibles. We need to be reminded that the Bible is the story of God from beginning to end and how God preserved, called a people and has promised to deliver a people and how God is blessing the nations through the people that he has called. It's the story of God. And the people that God calls often are very flawed, just like Esther. And God does not spare the details of their character flaws, which is a reminder to us that we're all flawed. And yet, it's not, and it's not about our goodness or the behavior that makes us acceptable before God. It's his grace and his calling on our lives. And so we see Esther as a reminder that, it's, that she's not somebody that we would lift up as an example of virtue, but as somebody who is broken in, in almost every way. In addition to the compromise, just think of her in a psychological way. The counselor had him, he comes in. I mean, one, you read the story. She's somebody who always needs to fi find the favor of guys. She just is wrapped, consumed with what guys think about her. She's somebody that uses her beauty in order to manipulate, whether it's the eunuch or her cousin or the king. She just, you know, characteristics, you know, counseling, and we say she has some issues. Now, maybe they're wrapped up in the fact that she was orphaned at a young age. We won't delve down there, but we see a very, very broken person who is not made whole before she starts being used by God. And so Esther goes along with the whole thing, and eventually she's the one who's selected to be queen. We continue on in the story, we see her cousin Mordecai, who he continues hanging out as his cousin is now selected and coronated as queen. And we're told that Mordecai likes to hang out, it's called the city, it's the king's gate, which is not so much a gate as it was a, a would be more equivalent to our county courthouse. It was a place where little civil uh, justice matters were adjudicated and, and worked through. Apparently he was a, a court junkie because he just kind of hung out there, knew everybody that hung out there. One of the royal officials that would come from time to time was a man named Haman. Haman had a history of just despising the Jewish people. Scholars tell us it was that his name indicates that he came from a, a, a people, a tribe that had been wiped out by Israel in previous battles during the time of Saul or during the time of David. And since it had only been a few generations, he was still feeling a sting of his people having been wiped out, even though he had himself had prospered. And so he just had this bitter hatred of the Jews. And he encounters Mordecai one day, who himself is Jewish. And Mordecai doesn't give Haman the respect that he thinks that he deserves. And so it just ignites the, the, the fuse in, in Haman. And so he decides that there's something need to be done about these Jewish people. In fact, we're going to just wipe them all out. And Haman concocts a plan. And being close to the king, he was able to get the king to sign off on the edict that I would just call, kill a Jew today for free. See, in Haman's plan, the basic aspect of that is there would be one day that would be set aside, and if you knew somebody who was Jewish and you didn't like them for whatever the reason, you could kill them and there'd be no consequence whatsoever. 
But Haman went even further than that, realizing that there are some people who just don't dislike anybody or don't want to be bothered or just didn't want to get involved in the idea of killing somebody. He decided to add an inducement. So rather than just hoping that people would be hateful, he also preyed upon their greed. And as an inducement, he said, it's not even a matter of you don't like the person, but any Jew that you kill, any stuff that they have, whether it's land or possessions, you can take that for free, tax-free. So he's trying to get as many people involved as they can, and when that day would come, all the people in the land would go uh, wipe out as many Jews as they possibly could, and he figured the problem would be rid. Some scholars tell us that Hitler didn't even go in that much detail to eradicate Jews from, from Germany, and so you can see what kind of guy this Haman is. Mordecai caught wind of the plan. Esther already the queen. He goes, and he's still in contact with Esther. He tells her of the plan. She has the king's ear. Mordecai suggests an alternative. The king doesn't eliminate the original edict, but he does offer another edict that says the Jewish people can at least protect themselves. And so as the story unfolds, the day is coming when the kill a Jew for free day was supposed to come. The Jewish people protect themselves. They are preserved, and rather than than Mordecai being hanged, Haman himself is hung and the Jewish people are preserved, the Jewish people are free to begin to prosper. That's essentially the the story of Esther. So now with the story behind us, we come back to our our first question. The first question was, what is God's providence? And I would define God's providence this way. Providence is the series of little coincidences that take place throughout the story to put Esther in a position to make a difference. The little coincidences, I'm not saying things just kind of happen but they're the little coincidences, incidents, a bunch of things, a bunch of activities, incidents that all work together that put her in that position where she was able to make a difference. Think about her life and the things that, uh, that we know about her that put her in that position. And what would have happened had they not been true? Think about the simple one. What if she'd been ugly? She would have never been selected for the pageant. She certainly would not have won the pageant. She would, not have had the, uh, would have not won and had the access to the king, much less the heart of the king. What if she hadn't been orphaned? I mean, she's raised by her cousin who says, when the whole idea comes and says, yeah, just go give yourself to the king. Dads look differently on those things for their daughter than maybe cousins do. Doesn't seem to be as good idea. Somebody's going to do what to my daughter? No way. Now, I don't know what alternative they would have had, but it would have been a very, very different matter. And there are a number of things in Esther's story that all have worked together to put her in the position where she ended up being able to make that difference. And yet we're still struck by the fact that while all these things are being worked together, God's name is never even mentioned by the author. And I think that's important, and I think that's significant for us, because I think it was intentional in order that we would be able to see God at work, even when we don't see God at work. So the people didn't see God. God's not even mentioned. God doesn't seem to be anywhere around, and yet God is the one that is orchestrating all of this to put everything together. Providence is the little series of coincidences that work throughout the story, not only Esther's story, but your story as well and and my story as well, because you belong to the Lord. He has promised that he will work out everything for your good 
you love him and you're called to his purpose. Brings us to our second question, though. How do we see God's providence? I mean, if we know providence works is that we recognize that God is at work, whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not, but God is at work and we know that that's working. How do we see it? My simple answer to that is we see God's providence best through the rearview mirror. In other words, we see God's providence only, almost always only when we look back or consider everything in retrospect. And think about it in this way. God's promises throughout the Scripture are relatively general for the most part. Even His great promises are pretty general. Think about the one that permeates all of the Scripture, God's call of Abram. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. Not only you, but all generations. There's a number of details, but that's a pretty general call. When Abram was called, he was just told, go. Abram says, where? And the Lord says, I'll show you when you get there. I mean, he wasn't told any details in advance. And throughout the Scripture, most of God's great promises are relatively general. Very rarely do we find specific details being given. Sure, Paul was told he'd be persecuted, wasn't necessarily told how, wasn't always told that would be the case. But very rarely do we see very specific details about what is going to happen in the immediate future, in somebody's immediate future. And even on some of those instances, some of those occasions where we have those kinds of details, the people don't usually get it. They don't understand. You think of Jesus as he's sharing with the disciples as he's coming to the point near the cross, and he says, the Son of Man has come to die. No one takes my life. I lay my life down. But the Son of Man must die. And the disciples, listening to these specific details of what's about to take place, and they just say to themselves, well, that can't be right. He, he must be speaking metaphorically. And they just, they just don't get it to the point that they're shocked when everything Jesus prophesied had come to fulfillment. And that's like throughout the Scripture we see that. There's very little detail given in, in God's promise and very little uh, and even when it is, it's, there's very few people are able to, uh, to get it. But one of the things we need to understand from that is that the people that were, were told about in the Scripture, day in and day out, they are usually operating with about as much information as you and I are operating with in our day-to-day -day lives when we are trying to find out what the will of God is. We know who God is. We know His character. We've been able to see that throughout the Scriptures and experience it in our own lives. We know what God's great promises are, so we know what God has said is going to happen in, in big picture terms down the road. We know that God is at work, and we know what God is doing. He's on mission to gather to himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We know where the heart of God is. We know some great principles, but we, we don't know much more detail than that. And we know that to walk faithfully, to live by faith, is to know that God only desires good for you Step out in faith, doing what you need to do based on the wisdom you have, knowing the character of God, your giftedness, the circumstances, and apply that. And so you just step out, even if you're not sure where you're stepping. That is true for us. It is true for the people in the Scriptures. We just are not given a lot of detail about the mind of God, about the will of God for our day-to-day -day lives. And that bothers me. I want to know. 
I want to know what God's will is for my life, not just for today. I want to know for tomorrow. I want to know God's will for my life for the next five years. I want to know for the next 20 years. I don't know how long after that I'll be around, so I'll worry about that later. But I want to know. I tell myself I want to know because I, knowing God's will, I can put myself more in conformity to God's will. The reality is I want to know because I want to know. And because I might have alternative plans that the Lord and I can talk about when those, some of the plans that he has for me don't look like they are to my liking. Those times where I will be experiencing suffering, failure, heartache. You know, if I know those are coming, the Lord and I can talk. I'll throw out some alternative suggestions, some better plans to show him through my prayers as to how this would be better for everybody involved. And we can come up with something else. It's just difficult for me to accept that God doesn't give us the details that I want. But I need to remind myself, and we need to remind ourselves, that in this story, Esther had no idea how things were going to end up any more than we have any idea of how things are going to end up in our story. Nobody in the story had any idea of how things were going to end up. Even Mordecai, who later in chapter 4, as he's talking with Esther, and they hatch a plan where Esther's going to go to the king and try to uh, counter or stop this persecution of the Jewish people, Mordecai at that point says, perhaps for such a time as this, the Lord has raised you up. He's not dealing with knowledge. He's speculating. He's saying, look, I know what the great promises of God are. I see how God has been at work and putting things together, and, and it, you know, maybe this is how... He's just thinking and hoping... He's believing God will be faithful to his problem and that he will somehow deliver his people, but he has no idea how God is, is going to work everything out until the story comes to an end. We need to be reminded that we gain great confidence when we remember God's past providences. That's sort of what Mordecai was doing. He saw how God had, had worked in the, in the past, but even if we don't have any idea of what God is going to do in the future, we continue. We, we have strength. We have encouragement from what God has done in the past. But we still, and we need to build upon that in order to deal with our own hearts when our immediate future is very unsettling. We also need to realize that our faith is built on a platform of God's past providence. His ultimate provision, his ultimate providence in the person of Jesus Christ. God has provided him, and as Paul wrestles through this and saying, look, if he didn't even spare his own son, what's he going to keep from you? And so there's an appeal for us to look in the rearview mirror and to remember the past providences, the little details that we see how God has worked out to put us in whatever position that we are in today. And the big one in the person of Christ and realizing God has been at work, but we see it only when we look in the rearview mirror. Now last, we say, ask the question of how should we respond to God's providence? And the simple answer is that we should respond with thankfulness and with gratefulness. And the reality is we can usually only do that when we look back. Very few of us are thankful and grateful in the midst of a storm. But when we look back and see how God has provided, we are able to be thankful and we are able to be grateful to him. And that's what we see at the end of the book of Esther. If you turn to chapter 9, we see the people beginning to celebrate. Haman has been hanged. 
their certain destruction has been reversed. The day that of doom for them became a day of doom for the ones who would hurt them. And we find the introduction of a feast known as Purim is established, picking up in verse 20. We see some of the details of that. And Mordecai recorded these things, recorded the things that took place in the book of Esther. Uh, Mordecai may have been the one who wrote the book of Esther. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the providences of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year, uh, same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So we see here introduced is this festival of, of Purim, a celebration that was not just a, a, a one-time party to say thanks to God, but as we read, it was to be observed regularly every year at the same time to think back on how God had provided, even though they're not even declaring it for the purpose of God at this point. They're saying to remember how we have been delivered, to remember how, uh, how we, our day of doom happened to be overturned. But we also find some principles for us because the question before us is how do we respond to God's providence as we see it? And we see some uh, very specific principles for us to help us to be able to extend gratitude and to be, uh, and to be thankful before God. The very patterns we see in them, and there's three things that we see, are the things that we can do to express our gratitude to God for the provision that he has for us. And it's important that we do that because just as the Jews had a day of reversal, we too have also had our day of reversal. There was a day that everything looked like it was done, it was all over with, and that we would have to face the consequence of our own decisions, our own actions, our own sin. That it looked like any hope that we had had been killed and that we would therefore also be eradicated as well. And yet on that day of our reversal, Jesus turned things by giving himself to death in our place and then coming to life again Rose, rising again from the dead, demonstrated that he had victory over death, that he had paid the price, that justice had already been served, and that God had turned the tables for all who believe in him. And Jesus said, whoever is in him have the benefit of the hope of that resurrection. And so we've also, if we are in Christ, also had that day of reversal in our lives, and we are in need of extending our thankfulness and our gratitude to the Lord. And the first thing we see that we are to do is we celebrate. We see that for them. The instruction was we're going to have a celebration. We're going to have a time where people are to come together and to celebrate the reversal that took place. And you and I, when we commit ourselves to coming to this place every single Lord's Day, that's what we are doing. We come to sing praises to the God and to celebrate the very action that Christ undertook in order to turn the tables on what we deserve and what we are now promised. We are called to gather together and to give celebration of this day that has been set aside not just once a year, but every single week to celebrate the resurrection and the victory that we have. Second, there's a giving of gifts. They were giving gifts of food. I assume not fruitcake because who would celebrate that? That doesn't make friends, I don't think. But they were giving specific gifts of food to one another, and they were just giving gifts. And it's just an expression of the relationship they had, the commonality they have, that they shared in this life that had been overturned, this, this life that they now have together. In other words, what we see here is that their lives were lived in community. And by gathering together and living in community and by giving to one another, whether they are in need or not, 
But just by extending tangible expressions of love to one another, we are celebrating what God has done for us, giving to us what we did not deserve, what we could not secure. We are giving thanks and honoring God in our activities, just as the Jews did in the Feast of Purim. Then there's a third one, which seems a little odd, perhaps, is that they remembered and they gave gifts to the poor. Interesting thing is it doesn't say they, the first part says they gave gifts to one another in terms of the gifts of uh, one another. It was to other believers, others who are part of the household of Israel, the household of faith. But this doesn't indicate that the poverty, those who they were giving gifts to, were necessarily poor Jewish people. The clear implication is they saw, wherever they saw there was need, wherever they saw there was poverty, as an expression of their gratitude to the one who had delivered them, to the one who had reversed their fortune, they met the tangible need of the poor who were around them. And so we, asking how we can celebrate the grace that God has given to us, we commit ourselves to coming and celebrating together on the Lord's Day. We are involved in each other's lives and giving tangible expressions of our love for one another as we share a common faith and a common deliverance. And we are aware of and we are committed to meeting the needs of the poor who are around us, whether they are part of our number, part of the household of faith, or not. They are committed because they realize they have been given something that they did not deserve. They, they had been given mercy. And an interesting thing happens here as you read through the, story, the end of the story. When the celebration took place and they were doing all three of these things, not only the Jews from the other nations came to the party that were invited, but pagan people from the other surrounding nations also came and joined in the party to celebrate their deliverance with them. And this is a reminder to us is that when we live our lives in celebration of God in community with one another and are concerned for the poor, there's something very attractive about that. And the Great Commission actually is taking place just by simply living our lives faithfully because people are drawn to the people of God just as God promised that he would bless them, that they would be a blessing. As we celebrate our deliverance and we choose to bless others, they're drawn and they come and they celebrate, have opportunity to hear the reason that we have hope, and they come from among all the nations. When we come this morning, I want to just leave you with this. We need to remember that we celebrate because we serve a king who does not require us to pretty ourselves up in hopes that he will choose us and select us. We serve a king who sees us for who we are, and with no prerequisites of change, he has chosen us, he has loved us, and he demonstrated his love in that he gave his life for us in our place, to secure us so that then we would be his bride. It's reason to celebrate. It's reason to celebrate in, in a way that just honors his name, not only here, but through faithfulness, his, his, what his deeds are declared among the nations. Because God has acted in an amazing way on our behalf. We celebrate because he is worthy. We celebrate because we are reminded time and again that our God is at work on our behalf, whether we see it or not. Let me pray. Father, we do give thanks to you for grace that is unwarranted and sometimes that is so extensive we don't even recognize it all. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the many ways that you have been at work in our lives to bring us to the positions that we are in, that we enjoy. And for those who are in positions that are more treacherous, I pray that the story of Esther 
and the examples of providences in their own lives in the past, and the ultimate expression of the provision of Jesus Christ will remind them of your love and that they can trust you even in these circumstances. Lord, help us to know that even when you seem distant, even when we wonder where you are, you are aware, you are at work, and your love is being expressed, preparing us for more than we can even imagine. Lord, we are in need of understanding, so remind us both by your word and by your spirit that we would have strength and joy. I pray in the name of Christ.